Praise God for bringing us musicians to this church, amen? I want to say, just do a little recognition of John here. John is actually a guitarist, and he learned bass for us about, what, six months ago, John? Six months, and just picked it up and saw a need. It's not his favorite thing to play, but we appreciate all of our, everyone here who helps out with our worship, with the sound, with everything that goes on in this church. So I just want to give some public recognition to you guys and let you all know how much you guys are a blessing to me. All right. Our text today, our scripture reading, comes from Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. The Holy Scriptures read, When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin this morning? Father, I ask that you empower me by your spirit to preach your word, not with eloquent words, of human wisdom, but with heavenly wisdom, which comes only through the power of the Holy Spirit in your written word. So, Father, I ask that this would be clear, that you would remove distractions from our minds, that I wouldn't say anything that would lead towards distraction or unclarity, but that things would be abundantly clear of who you are and what you call us to be by your power and your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Nearly everyone knows the name Bruce Lee, who is considered the kung fu master of the entire world. Even Chuck Norris was asked once, if you fought Bruce Lee, who would win? And without hesitation, he said, no one can beat Bruce. Most people, though, don't know the man who taught Bruce Lee. Most people have no idea who it was who discipled Bruce Lee in the way of kung fu. And who that man was, was a man named Ipman. He was born in 1893, and he lived in China in the village of Foshan, and was known by many as Master Ip. He was a martial artist of the highest order, who was a master unlike any other in the art of Kung Fu. In his early life, Ip Man worked as a police officer, however, Eventually, when the Communist Party took over in China, he had to flee because he did not support them. So he fled to Hong Kong, where he found many people waiting who had heard of the legend of Ip Man and wanted to train as his disciple from this legendary master so they, too, could be like the best. However, Ip Man had very few students. And so becoming his disciple was no small endeavor. This was a big deal to become one of the disciples of Ipman. And so, when the 16-year-old Bruce Lee joined Ipman's class, he was quite privileged to be able to sit at the feet of a true kung fu master who would then teach him everything that he knew about martial arts. Ipman's nephew also taught kung fu, and it was funny because he eventually, I believe, ended up becoming the trainer for Bruce Lee later on. But he said that when Lee first showed up, he was total, and I quote him, rubbish. He was rubbish, he said. 
In fact, at that time, Lee had been getting into fights as a young 16-year-old boy with members of a rival gang, getting his clock cleaned over and over. And so that was why Lee came to Ip Man, hoping to learn the ways of fighting so he could get his revenge. But his master did not teach him that way. He knew better, and he, so he would scold him, saying, You are learning Kung Fu, Bruce. You are not learning how to fight. That's what Kung Fu is. Kung Fu is not actually teaching the person to attack, but to avoid attacks largely. And so Lee eventually listened to his master, and he came every day to do whatever his master said so that he could be like him and learn the art of Kung Fu. It was said that one day their class was canceled because there was a holiday, but Bruce Lee showed up anyways, and his master was like, go home, there's no class today. He says, no, there is class today for me and you. And so he did end up convincing him to train him one-on-one because Lee was so relentless, so much so that over the years, Lee's life changed drastically as he committed himself to learning the mastery of Kung Fu. This required giving up his social life, his other dreams, and his other aspirations, which he gladly did. And why, though? Because he had something he wanted more than those things, and it was to become like his Kung Fu master, Ipman. In Matthew chapter 8, church, we find two men who come to Jesus in order to be his disciples. And how does Jesus respond to these two men? You say, oh, oh, of course, yeah, get in line back there. Come on, hop on the train here. We take just about anybody around here. Is that what Jesus says? No, he doesn't. Instead, Jesus points out the high cost of what it means to be one of his disciples, but wait a minute, though. I thought, I thought Jesus really does take anybody. Why is he responding like this to these two men? Well, he's responding that way because the Bible's crystal clear about this. There is a cost of discipleship. What is that cost? Well, that's what we're going to answer this morning. The cost is three things. The cost of discipleship requires, first off, our comfort, second, our relationships, and third, our very life. Let's look at the first one. Look at verses 18 through 20. They're not going to be up on the screen. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to look at 18 through 20. In verse 18, it says, When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The context for our passage this morning, you know what this is. You know what's going on. Jesus just finished the Sermon on the Mount, right? And he finished it in a way that left the crowd shocked and in awe because Jesus didn't teach like some sissy teacher, some, you know, just giving opinions. No, he didn't teach like their religious leaders. Jesus taught with authority. He's like, this is truth. He taught that way. And so they were in shock and awe by it because of his preaching and teaching that was in authority. And the question then is that they had, what gives him the right to talk this way? Who are you to tell me how to live my life? <laughs> like, what's the deal here? That's rude. How do you get, who gives you the right? Well, chapter eight tells us what gives Jesus the right. We talked about this last week, but largely Jesus starts answering that question by doing what? Healing everybody. Like, he just heals all over the place. He starts by healing the leper. He then heals the centurion's servant. And then he heals Peter's mother-in-law. 
And no, I'm not going to take the bait here to make a mother-in-law joke because I'm not that dumb. So we're going to move on. Verse 16 says, Jesus healed everyone who was sick. That's more people than those three. And what else did he do? Cast out demons. Seems like somebody with some authority, does it not? Sure. Now, is it any wonder then why Jesus drew such large crowds? Now, the reality is, our, as we saw last week, our day and age is totally different than theirs. A lot of times people died in their mid-30s over little bacterial diseases and stuff that we have antibiotics for. And today we live in a modern medical society. But still, if you knew that there was someone in the next town over, how many here would travel over there if they knew that person could heal them to be healed by something? Like we've all got something to be healed from, right? Everybody's got some little ailment. And if you don't, by the time you get there, you probably will. So go anyways. After drawing these large crowds, though, Jesus decides to walk away from them, to get away from them, by sailing over to the other side of the lake. And as we're going to see in the next few coming weeks, this serves as a setup for Jesus to calm the storm and also to heal the demoniacs, right? He casts the demons out, they go into the pigs, they run off the cliff and go kamikaze mode and die, right? And that freaks out the villagers, and they're like, would you please leave Jesus? Like, this is weird, (laughs) Right? But we're going to see that in the next coming weeks. But here's the question. Why did Jesus pull back from these crowds? Why? Well, there's several reasons. But one of the reasons is blatantly obvious. It's because this, these crowds, they didn't weigh the cost of discipleship. Largely speaking, they did not weigh the cost of discipleship. Think about it. For the most part, why did the crowds follow Jesus? Because they wanted comfort not closeness with Jesus, right? They wanted the comfort of his healings. They wanted the benefits, but not the baggage. Or we could say they wanted the gifts, but not the gift giver. But if that's your approach to Jesus, hear me when I tell you this this morning. Do you know what that means? It means you aren't one of his disciples. You're not means you're not one of his followers. What are you more like then? You're more like a groupie, right? As long as the music's good, as long as the parties continue on, as long as the band keeps playing and the bus keeps rolling from gig to gig, you're in. The second any of that changes, well, then you're out. This is why, church, the American church, not America, the American church, I believe is one of the largest mission fields on the planet. And it's because the American church has largely become like the crowd that followed Jesus. They sought the gifts, not the gift giver, is what the crowd did, and that's what we do today, largely as a church. Instead of being like the congregation that follows Jesus because Jesus is worth following, The crowd in evangelical churches today follows Jesus because they want their appetites filled. They've got a a hunger, a need, a desire, and hey, you know what? This Jesus guy can fill that for me. Say yes to Jesus and he'll take care of all your problems, preachers will preach. Are you broken? Are you hurting? Are you in need of some divine help? Well, Jesus is there just waiting if you'll let him. He wants to make it all better. That is preached from pulpits all around this country, Sunday after Sunday. That's not discipleship, church. That's not discipleship. 
That's pragmatic diplomacy. That's going to Jesus not to get Jesus. It's to get what Jesus has. See, Jesus has what you want, and so you'll join his team so long as he continues to give it to you. But here's the question I have for you this morning. Does Jesus promise us comfort? Is that what it's about to be a follower of Jesus? Like, yeah, you'll still have problems, but you know what? They won't be as bad as they would be without Jesus. Is that the point of being a disciple? No, it's not. Does Jesus promise us that if we sign on his sign on his dotted line that our life will be a country music song sung backwards? You'll get your wife back, your dog, your house, and truck will work? Is that what it's all about? No, that's a prosperity gospel and it's a heresy. It's not what it's about. Jesus warns us that if we are going to be his disciple, it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us something. Now, these guys who came to Jesus, and this wasn't part of the plan, but I'm going to tell you this anyways because I think it's important. They were in a different situation. The Son of Man, which is God, there's a whole lot packed into that Son of Man title we don't have time to jump into today. But this was a special situation. God in flesh was there. And so their cost of comfort they were being called to abandon and give up is different than ours today. But there are similarities here. So there's a lot we can pick up from this. And Jesus is warning, this is a warning for all of us, that if we are going to be his disciple, we are going to have to count the cost. Don't do it lightly, right? Count it. Figure out if you're going to follow Jesus or not. And to varying degrees, without a doubt, it's absolutely going to cause you some comfort. And if it hasn't, you know what that also means? You don't have any good reason to believe you are an actual disciple of Jesus. You're probably just in the crowd, is what that means. Look with me at verse 19. And a scribe came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The scribe comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. That looks pretty good, doesn't it? That's that's not like, hey, I'll follow you to that town, but if it's the town over, that's too far. No, he says, wherever you go. And what does Jesus say to the man? Well, he starts talking about critters, holes, and nests. What's all that about? It's about this. Jesus' point is that following him isn't going to be comfortable. The Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head at night. And so to be Jesus' disciple means that you value Christ over your comfort. You value Christ over comfort. Do you value Christ over comfort? That's the question you've got to answer this morning. Do you value Christ over comfort? The Bible is crystal clear here. To be a follower of Jesus will cost you. Let me show you this. Matthew 16, 24 says this. Then Jesus told told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him what? Deny himself. Does that sound like that's a comfortable thing? Y'all awake? No. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) Does that sound like a comfortable thing? No, it doesn't, does it? Deny yourself and take up his cross and follow me. This isn't talking about just wearing a cross necklace, right? Like a lot of us got those little cross necklaces. That's not what it means by taking up your cross, put on the necklace every morning, put on your WWJD bracelet, and go out in the world and just get persecuted because people make fun of you or something. No, that's not what it's talking about. To take up your cross is to leave comfort behind and suffer for Christ. Look with me at Luke 14.33. I'll put it up here for us. Here's what it says. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be what? My disciple. 
What does that verse mean? Well, you know what I think that verse means? I think it means that any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be Jesus' disciple. Got that from seminary right there. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things of this world. Why? Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of this world. Let me ask you, who's the Father of this? Who's, who's, the, who's in charge of this world right now? That's right, Satan is. means you're a child of the devil. Verse 17, and what's happening to this evil world? It's passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's weird. It doesn't say whoever said a prayer when they were seven abides forever, does it? It doesn't say whoever said a prayer and then went on to live their life as a non-disciple, rejecting everything that Jesus calls them to follow and do, embracing every comfort of this world. It doesn't say that, does it? No, it doesn't. The point Jesus and the New Testament and all of scriptures make is this. You cannot serve two masters, for you will hate the one and despise the other. And how do we despise the other? Well, when we read what Jesus calls us to do in his word, we don't obey it, do we? We reject that. Did Bruce Lee reject his Trainer, Ipman's advice on how to be a Kung Fu master? No, he didn't, did he? Why? Because he was a disciple. He wanted to be like his master. And so the point is clear here, church. We cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Or we could say it again like this. You cannot serve both Christ and personal comfort. You get to pick one. Whatever one that is, that's your God. You see now why the American church is in such shambles? It's in shambles because we have filled it with spiritual gluttons who see Jesus as their personal servant who exists to satisfy their idolatry. That's what it means to chase comfort over Christ. That's idolatry, right? Church is not a place to come and serve the risen king in America, it's largely a place to come and to be entertained, to come and hear emotionally manipulative music that just makes me feel close to Christ, when in reality, you're worshiping the feeling of worship. Because how do I know that? Well, for one, all week long, if you're worshiping your comfort and you show up Sunday morning for a brief hour and 15 minutes or whatever, and then turn on the worship songs and get rolling, and that's your worship all week, you're worshiping the feeling of worship, not Christ, right? Church for these kind of Christians, professing Christians, is a country club, not a community of spirit-filled believers whose life mission is to serve the glory of God. Everybody relax, because I'm going to tell you, what I'm about to tell you isn't prophecy, because I'm not a prophet and neither are you. You don't have to be the sharpest tool in the shed to realize that the cultural winds of Christianity are changing, right? Right? Christianity is on the outs, at least biblical Christianity. If, you know, you do the watered-down thing, they'll tolerate you. Maybe, maybe they'll kill you last down the road, right? <laughs> That's really about it. But the cultural winds are changing towards Christianity. The culture don't like Christians anymore. And this dislike trait of us historically turns into what? Persecution. And so many of you have had discussions with me about this, but I am 
pretty convinced that my generation of pastors is preparing the Western church for said coming persecution. But here's the thing about that. If Christ is your comfort, not your king, then when the comfort of this life begins to wane, so will your allegiance to Christ. And why? Because you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and comfort or money, whatever you want to call it there. It's comfort is what it is. And so unless we come to Christ ready to give up our comforts, we cannot be his disciple because comfort is a cost of discipleship. It absolutely is. If anybody tells you otherwise, don't listen to them. It's not true. Comfort is a cost of discipleship. We must then come to Christ without our luggage, without bags in our hands, right? We drop that. We leave it. We come with our hands open to receive all that he has in store for us. We must also come to Christ realizing the cost includes not just our things, not just our comforts, but our relationships as well, which leads us to our second point. The cost of discipleship requires our comfort, and secondly, it requires our relationships. Look at verse 21 with me, would you? Another of the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave, to, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Here a man comes to Jesus looking to follow him, and become one of his disciples, but he has just one caveat, doesn't he? One part of, one, one little condition. He wants to bury his father first. What does Jesus say to him? Let the dead bury their dead. Follow me. Now that just seems cold, doesn't it? (laughs) Like the guy's dad's dead and you can't go bury him? Like, come on, Jesus. Like you can't wait two days or whatever. You know, that's how it seems at first glance, doesn't it? Anybody else read it that way? I do. Well, I studied this week. Now, here's the thing. Why the seemingly cold-hearted response to Jesus? Well, because it's not a cold-hearted response. So to answer this, we've got three options to how to interpret it. I don't know for sure which one it is. I think it's the third one, but I'm going to give you these three options. You take your choice which one you think it is. I don't think it's the first one. It's either the second or the third, probably the third. All right, so here's the first one. The first option is that this man's father legit just died, and all he wanted to do was bury him. And I don't think this is the right option because biblically, there's numerous commands for children to honor their parents, right? Like, it was a big deal in Jewish culture, in Jewish religion even. Like we have lots of verses in the Old Testament talking about how it is a God-given responsibility to take care of your parents and honor them. And so with this man likely being the oldest son who has that responsibility of burying his father, for him to just ditch out on the family at this time would be really disrespectful and, I would argue, breaking God's laws. So most likely, I don't think the first glance reading of this text, like we all probably have, is actually what's going on here. Right? I don't think that's the case. And most commentators don't either. All right, here's the second option. This one's much more likely. It's either this one or the third one, probably the third. The second option is to see this as a colloquialism. Say that 10 times fast, colloquialism. It's basically a cultural expression of Jesus's time. And even today, you find this in the Middle East. People will say they need to bury their still living father, and they don't mean bury him alive, right? At least most of the time. What they mean is that they simply need to go take care of their family. I listened to one preacher who was talking about a missionary over there who heard him say that. He's like, wait, 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 what? Your dad's still alive? He's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, he's alive. Just got to go bury him. 
What do you mean? Well, his dad's in a later stage of life. He's got to take care of him, care of him, uh, you know, go through that whole process, whatever. That's what it's talking about, all right? Now, maybe you think that's a weird way to say it. Well, you know what? We've got colloquialisms, too, here in the West. Uh, things like spill the tea, Monday morning quarterback, cut to the chase, shoot the breeze, take a rain check, work the graveyard shift, and sign your John Hancock. And if you're not in our culture, know those things. Be like, those people are weird, right? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> All cultures have these. All right? So that would be option two. It's a colloquialism. It's a saying or an expression, which basically means his father's in his later years of life. He needs to take care of him. He can't go yet. So this is a longer time period if that's, if that's actually what's going on in this text. All right? Now, here's the third one. I think this is actually probably the right one. In Jewish culture, when there was a death in the family, the body had to be buried by which day? Shout it out. I'm deaf. Three. Everybody get it? By three, which is why, well, it had to be, they had to be buried by day three, right? Because why? Because that was when Febreze wasn't going to cut it anymore, all right? The body stunk by day, you know, and so it was like, get this thing in the ground, okay? And so that's why when Jesus came asking to see Lazarus' body, they're like, uh, yeah, Jesus, you know it's day four. We buried him because he stank, all right? So the way this worked was, they would seal the body by day three in the tomb for an entire year, right after the death, right? They wouldn't come to a funeral right away and all this kind of stuff. Like they just get them in the ground fast because this thing's going to start smelling, all right? So they put them in there for a year until the flesh and everything would decay away and there would just be bones left. And so on the one-year anniversary, they would pick up the bones, they would put them in a bone box called an ossuary, and then it was the oldest son's job to put the, proverbial, the final proverbial nail in the coffin by going in, collecting dad's bones, so he could put them in with the rest of their ancestors' bones in the, in the ancestral bone box, okay? So that's how this worked in Jewish culture. And so this man, most likely, right, his father was somewhere, like he was somewhere between the time of his father's death and that one-year anniversary. And so he needed to stick around. Why? Well, to finish that process, to get the estate in order, right? To make sure that everything was divided up if he had siblings, and of course, as the oldest son, to make sure he got the double portion that the oldest son got. All right? So if that's the right thing, there's like kind of a financial incentive here for him to not follow Jesus right away, right? A comfort reason why he doesn't want to follow Jesus right away. And Jesus picked up on that. But the point is, regardless of which view you take here, probably not point one, I don't think that's it, but the point here is this. Jesus must be first over family. That's the point. Jesus must be first over comfort, but he must also be first over family. And this is something the Bible makes crystal clear for us. I'm just going to read one verse on it. I could show you a few more, but just one. Matthew 10, 34 through 37. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What does it mean to put Jesus first over family relationships? It means that you don't put your family over Jesus. Right? This isn't complicated stuff, right? If family is first, though, in our lives, what are we going to do? What's this going to look like? Well, one, 
who might demand that we have a family. That might be a, something that we come to Jesus with and say, this is a non-negotiable. You got to take care of my family. I want a family. You got to take care of them. But what if God doesn't give us a family? Or what if God takes our family away like he did with Job? Will you still follow Jesus? Or is that a condition of your discipleship? If family is first, we will also demand that we will have a successful family. We'll reorient our whole life around the family's success, and that will be the, like what drives everything we do. It's all about the family. It's all about our success. And this shows itself in a couple of ways, right? One of the ways is workaholic, right? Which is why when you are this way, you're hardly ever at church. You hardly read your Bible. You hardly spend time with other believers, hardly serve others. And why is that? Because you're too busy working to make the family business a success, to bring in money in order to pay for all the things the family needs for their success. You're doing it for the family. Another way is you're hyper-obsessed with your kids' future success. Because, hey, their future's on the line here. they got to be successful, right? Who wants their kid to be a bum? None of us. If they don't get enough study time, they might not pass the test, which means that they won't get the grade, which means that they won't get the stellar career because they didn't get into the right college, which means they'll be a failure, which means what? I'm a failure as a parent, right? Don't we think this way? I'm sorry, preacher, but you know what? School takes priority over your little church events. I'm sorry, preacher, but my job takes priority over your little church events. Well, first off, they're not my church events, <laughs> right? Christ is the head of the church, not the preacher. And you know what another thing this manifests itself in? Sports. This is a huge idol in our culture right now. Sports have taken a priority because sports are a way of bolstering the family, of making so your child can grow up to be successful. They have to have a happy childhood, Right? You've got to have a comfortable childhood. But do you see what's really going on here? You do, don't you? You are saying, Jesus, I'll follow you. I'll be your disciple. If. You've got a condition attached. Jesus, I'll follow you so long as fill it in. But what does Jesus say about that? And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This leads us to our final point. The cost of discipleship requires our comfort. The cost of discipleship requires our relationships. And finally, it costs us our life. Look at me at verse 22. And Jesus said, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. The great German theologian and Christian martyr Diedrich Bonhoeffer once famously said this. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. I don't like that invitation. <laughs> you? <laughs> doesn't sound very comfortable. Come and die talking about. The Bible is crystal clear. We cannot save ourselves, and we must look to Christ to save us, which is why Romans 3.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. However, and don't miss this, though the gift of eternal life is free to all who ask, to ask Jesus for eternal life is to give up your life. It's an exchange, right? It's, it's an exchange. It's to say, Jesus, my life, my dreams, my aspirations, my desires, my plans, I don't need, I don't want that anymore. That's rubbish. Throw it away. I want the eternal life you have for me, and I will openly, with both of my hands, take that. I want the new life you've given, and so I will gladly lay my old life at your feet so my hands are free to accept the eternal life you give. And this gift is entirely free to us by the grace of God. Amen? In Philippians 3, 7 through 8, Paul writes this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, including my comfort, including family relationships, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, of becoming a disciple of Jesus is what he's saying. For Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Why? In order that I might gain Christ. A passage is a powerful one. And in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, Paul says this about how that gaining Christ comes about. But God, being rich in his mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then he says also in verse 8 through 10 of Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want to ask you this morning, if somebody came to you and they said, you know what? You have a great, great uncle. He just died. And it's in another country. There's, he left his estate to you. It's a massive mansion. It's got all the money you could ever dream for, ask for. You're going to live like a king or a queen for the rest of your life. You got to go. But what would it take to take hold of that new life? You'd have to let go of your current life here, right? You'd have to leave your family here. You'd have to leave the friends here. You'd have to leave your career that's here in order to grab hold of that new life that has been given to you, right? And if you try to hold on to your life you have here, well, grabbing the life there, it's not going to work, is it? This is what it means when Jesus offers us eternal life. He bids us come and die so that we might live in life eternal. Colossians 3, 3 through 5 says this, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who appears is your life, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Maybe you're here this morning and you're in the crowd. And you wonder, 
Well, what does this mean for me? What am I supposed to do about this? Well, weigh the cost of discipleship. Do you want Jesus? Do you want the new life? Or do you want your old life? That's the question you've got to ask. Which one do you want? Secondly, maybe you're here this morning and you say, you know what, preacher? I think I am a disciple. Boy, have I been wandering. Boy, is my heart prone to wander. I am wandering. Well, return to the master. Give up. Stop trying to go back to your whole life. Live in the new life that he purchased you through his precious blood. And that's the thing, church. Jesus died for us so that we might live. Jesus came and lived the life we could never live. He died the death for us that we could never die so that we might have life eternal. We cannot earn this new life. We cannot work for it or earn it with a life of good works. It is entirely given to us by the grace of God. However, when we do receive this eternal life, we receive Christ's life in us, which begins to change us and radically shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You count everything as loss because you want Christ? That's your heart's desire? To follow him? Is that what you're about? In closing here, I want to read a verse for us here. Matthew 10, 39 says, But whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Have you left your old life behind? Maybe you're here and you aren't a disciple at all of Jesus. You're in the crowd and you follow Jesus when it's expedient. You follow Jesus when he delivers on the blessings. And why shouldn't he? You've done all the work. You've put in the time. You've done your part of the bargain. And so, of course, he better keep up with his part. And if he doesn't, you'll be ready to cry out with the crowd, crucify him, crucify him, as they later came to do. But if that's you this morning, come to the Savior. Give up your comfort. It doesn't last. It ends in the judgment of a holy God. Give it up and embrace the comfort, the eternal comfort that he offers. Also, if you're here and you are a disciple of Christ, as we just mentioned, and you can say, I have not been living how I should, I have not been following him, get back on mission. Get back living your new life that Christ purchased you with his own blood. Don't be like the dog that returns to its vomit. And we do all this for, as Paul said, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. As Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And remarkably, we find that when we accept this call, Christ gives us everlasting eternal life. Would you pray with me? Father, I just thank you for this text this morning. And Lord, I just ask that today's text that we looked at, that this, this would be abundantly clear, that nobody would walk away here with legalism thinking that they have to earn being a disciple. It is entirely by your grace. But still, nevertheless, there is a cost. It is to abandon our life, 
abandon ourselves as being the master and look to Christ who is now our master. And so we thank you for the eternal life that Christ purchased for us on the cross, the blood that he shed that made us possible for our dead spiritual corpses to be raised to life and life eternal. And so, Father, I just uh, I pray for this church. I pray for the one here who doesn't know you, who's not a disciple, who's living for comfort, who's living for relationships, who's living for this dead life. I just pray that they would give up all that, that they might pursue and receive Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing our closing songs?